Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Real quick programming note, you will see me on HBO tomorrow night if you watch Real Time with Bill Maher. I get to be the designated conservative. It's going to be me against four. Uh, I I like those odds. So you can tune into Real Time with with Bill Maher on HBO tomorrow. Tomorrow night, 10 p.m. It'll be live. They actually, so I'll, I'll I'll be gone tomorrow. Obviously, Alan Sanders will be in for me tomorrow. I, I leave for L.A. in the morning. It's it's a nice trip. They put me up. They, they treat me right. Get a driver, all that stuff, uh, and then get to hang on on the set and be the only conservative. Um, but it, it's a fun time. It's like being back at CNN or going on MSNBC. Um, except Bill actually is is uh, don't kill me for saying this. He's a nice guy. He's got great staff. Uh, you know, it speaks highly of someone whether you like the guy or not. Uh, and I realize he's very controversial and, and raises the hackles of, of the right. But I've been in in business TV enough uh, for many years. It actually most of his staff has worked for him for 15 to 20 years, and that actually speaks really highly of him behind the scenes. Anybody in business recognizes the fact that if you keep staff with you for that long uh, and you are the brand, then then you're probably behind the scenes, uh, regardless of your public persona, uh, you treat people well. Uh, and the, his staff speaks very highly of him. So I'll be there uh, tomorrow night. I don't expect any of you to watch. Uh, I, I Listen, I don't watch... Heck, I don't watch anything anymore. Uh, I just, I I try to digest the news for you guys. So, okay, we got to get into impeachment. But before we get into impeachment, there's actually a bigger story, I think. A notable story, and we should discuss it, analyze its implications. The president of the United States is going to be the first president in American history to appear at the March for Life. Uh, Ronald Reagan appeared by phone uh, and spoke over the speakers at March for Life. Uh, president Bush did as well. President Trump has done a video address before. He's actually going to appear live. Uh, Russ Vote, a dear friend of mine, the head of Office of Management and Budget, who on my website, The Resurgent, wrote a piece in defense of Wheaton College uh, being a Christian institution. He was assailed by Bernie Sanders, who tried to block him from uh, becoming the deputy director of OMB. He, Russ Vote will be speaking as well. He and his wife, Mary, are good friends. They have a daughter with cystic fibrosis, uh, very, very pro-life, uh, strongly pro-life. And uh, they're good people. So he's going to be there. But it's really big that President Trump is going to speak in person at the March for Life on the Mall in Washington. It's notable for several reasons. First of all, uh, it is the first time it's happened. Secondly, it really does, uh, given all of his positions and the things he's done in his judicial picks, make him the most pro-life president. Uh, That's indisputable at this point. But the Republican Party still funds Planned Parenthood, and when they controlled everything, when they controlled all of Congress, when they were willing to shut down the government on a border wall, the Republicans in Congress refused to even try to pick a fight with uh, defunding Planned Parenthood. Meanwhile, Planned Parenthood is spending uh, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars trying to defeat Republican candidates, including Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, two of the Republicans who pitched a fit when the Republicans even thought about uh, defunding Planned Parenthood. So for all the, the talk of, of the Republican president, they're, the GOP is kind of pro-life light in that they like to be pro-life through executive order. And when the next administration comes in, they can undo those executive orders themselves. And we can have a back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, th- that's, that's problematic. And it also has allowed some cynicism within the pro-life movement to suggest that 
the Republicans actually don't want to solve the problem. They don't want to end abortion in the country. They just want to fundraise off of it, which could be true. I Listen, I think there are some who are. I, I've got a very dear friend of mine who ran for a while, one of the major pro-life groups, and she told me she would far prefer to go to Nancy Pelosi's office or Barbara Boxer's office and have a very pleasant conversation about them in search of common ground, knowing they would never agree on abortion, than to go to a Republican, certain Republican senator's uh, office, who will go nameless. Uh, and and she said she would go into his office and he would give her the 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 all shucks pat on the head uh, spiel about how he he just loves the babies and Jesus. And she said he'd never lift a finger. At least with Nancy Pelosi and Barbara Boxer, you knew going in that they were hostile to your position, but you may actually be able to find common ground on other issues, adoption reform, foster care, helping the homeless. But with, with Republicans, it's always head pats and never anything meaningful other than, did you see the judge I put on the bench? Uh, so in any event, it is significant. The other thing this tells you is that the president is taking a, a distinctive approach in 2020 that other Republican presidents have not really explicitly taken, and that is he intends to concentrate on mobilizing his base. The president's team, and I think they've been fairly open about this. I, I do think that's true. The president's team has decided that they are going to give up on trying to find new and independent voters to come vote for him. They think this is going to be a base election. The Democrats and the Republicans are going to turn out their bases, and they're going to see who has the bigger base in the country. The Republicans, I'm told, actually, there's a Brian Kemp connection. For those of us listening in Georgia, Brian Kemp, the governor in Georgia, he lost the urban areas and the suburban areas in the state of Georgia. But he mobilized in mass— the suburban areas of the state, or I'm sorry, the, the, the rural and the exurban areas of the state. Now, what are exurban areas? So if you're in Atlanta and you drive north up, uh, let's see, 75, go up 575, go up uh, Georgia 400, head towards north Georgia till you hear the banjos and then stop. And you head up to north Georgia. You go through uh, you go through Cobb County or you go through North Fulton County and it's it's highly congested, but a lot of it is homes and strip malls. Those are the suburbs. You go further north up 400, you get on 575, go up North Barrett Parkway, you're, you're headed up towards Jasper. You get uh, larger lots of land and houses and less strip malls, more small convenience stores. You may get a Dollar General or a Dollar Tree in there. And you go further, you get into Jasper, and, and you get into downtown Jasper. You head up to, to L.A.J., and you've got larger little tracts of land and spread out houses and farms. The exurbs are that area... Whether you're in Cherokee County or Forsyth County, it's beyond the strip mall suburbs and into the larger tracts of homes and farms, but not yet rural. You're still within 10, 15 minutes of a Target or a Walmart. And Donald Trump is doing very well in the exurbs. He's doing very well in the rural areas, and he's, he's fighting for the suburbs, but it's tough. He's losing them, but barely. So the Republican political strategy is maximize, do what Brian Kemp did, maximize the rural vote turning out, maximize the exurban vote turning out, and try to draw as close as you can in the suburbs through detailed targeting. Now, how do you do detailed targeting? Well, you do detailed targeting by going and looking at the people, for example, uh, use 2016 and 2018. Look at the people who turned out in 2016 in the suburbs. 
Look for example in Georgia. Uh, look in uh, Richmond County. Look in Cobb County. Look in Gwinnett County. Look in Forsyth. Look in in, in Southern Cherokee County. Look in uh, Northern Houston County. Look in Northern Bibb County. See the people who turned out in 2016 but did not turn out in 2018. Because that's always a good number. Remember, Republicans turned out about 120, 200,000 less in 2018 than 2016 in Georgia. So you find the people who didn't turn out in 2018, who did turn out in 2016, and then you do an, a you do a psychographic profile on these people to determine are these people Republican. Then you look at the people who did turn out in 2016 and the people who turned out in 2018, and you do all the cross-referencing possible, political donations referencing possible, uh, social media engagement possible to find out, is this person, do they lean right, do they lean left, is there a single issue that makes them tick? You build these comprehensive profiles. And then you try to find who are these people's friends. I, I'm going to go. I, I have basically bookmarked this audio because it's so on point from Jonathan Swan. And it's not just because because I like his Aussie accent. Uh, l- listen again on how the impeachment hearings are affecting the president's campaign, because this is relevant also to the March for Life stuff. I'll just put one asterisk next to this. Impeachment has been great for business on the Trump campaign. They've raised a lot of money. Oh, have they ever. Have they ever. And the extent to which this has grown their fundraising base and actually really engaged the Republican uh, donors, but also the grassroots. They've collected data. They've already got a formidable data machine, text messages, Facebook. I mean, it's been significant. Data, text messages, uh, grassroots fundraising, the donor base, grassroots engagement, the number of people who are signing up to go door to door. So now he goes to the March for Life, and there are a lot of people who will go to the March for Life who didn't vote for him in 2016. They are conservative evangelicals who are deeply concerned about his character. I would be in that camp. Didn't vote for him in 2016. Deep concerns about his character. Deep concerns he would keep his his word because he had championed pro, uh, Planned Parenthood in the past. Uh, he had been pro-abortion in the past. And he turns out to be what he said he would would be. He turns out to have kept his promises. So now they want to get those people mobilized. But more importantly, who's going to be at the March for Life? For those of you who are not familiar with March for Life, it does not get a lot of attention from the American mainstream media. The, the media gave will give more attention to 20 students walking out of class to protest guns than they will 100,000 students showing up in Washington to March for Life. They will give more attention to 5,000 women in those little pink knitted caps uh, protesting the president dropping F-bombs than they will to a million people showing up on the mall for uh, March for Life. The March for Life is the largest march in the country uh, in favor of life and overturning Roe v. Wade. In fact, I I live in Macon. I'm broadcasting right now from Macon. Uh, If you're in middle Georgia, there will be a march for life at noon tomorrow uh, in Rosedale Park by the Macon City Hall. There will be march for lives around the state of Georgia. Uh, In fact, uh, Josh Edmonds, who I had on on yesterday, talking about you can go to the Georgia Life Alliance website and you can find some information on places in Georgia. If you don't have one, you can start one, get with your church, plan one for next year. It's always done on the Friday and Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, closest to Roe versus Wade. The Roe versus Wade anniversary was yesterday. It is a big issue within the conservative movement, and it doesn't get a lot of coverage in the media for the same reason uh, the, the gun activists in Virginia did not get a lot of media coverage once they realized they weren't going to be violent people because the media socially is aligned on the left so thoroughly that the media cannot actually bring themselves to portray positively a cause. You know, you you, you have the, the, the women in their comfortable shoes saying terrible 
terrible things about the president. 60-year-olds with green eyeshadow and red hair, like dyed red, fuchsia hair, whatever the color. I don't know. The weird colors that are not natural, who look like they're clowns, but they're actually serious. Uh, and, and they identify, like their Twitter profiles have, I'm a, I'm a her, she, whatever the heck that is. You mean you're a woman? Okay. The media will give them an inordinate amount of attention because the media is on their side. And they will ignore the fact that when those people leave protest, there's a disaster. These people don't pick up their trash. They leave litter everywhere. And the pro-lifers, like the Tea Party groups, like the gun rally groups, they go in. They actually leave the place cleaner when they leave. They clean the place up. It is one of the most phenomenal things you ever. if you ever go to the March for Life. They are the cleanest, nicest, kindest people. Remember, it was a year ago at the March for Life, the media decided to pounce and go after the Covington Catholic School kids who were there for the March for Life, and they're now being sued over that. But you're going to have a bunch of people at the March for Life who didn't support the president in 2016, and the president is trying to mobilize these people. He's trying to get these people to vote for him. But more importantly, who's going to be at the March for Life? Kids. Kids. Kids are going to be at the March for Life. My daughter wants to go to the March for Life here in Macon. I think she's going to skip school with some friends to go, which I told her that that's fine. Her, her school, good small Christian school, they'll be fine with her leaving for an hour to go, to go to the March for Life. It's a bigger deal than a day of school. But the president, if he can get these kids in the database, and I'm not talking little kids. I'm talking like late teens, maybe early 20s. Uh, I guess they're kids now to me since I'm in my 40s. But in any event, get them in a database. And get them out there volunteering, get them trained, get them knocking on doors. These are nice, good kids. These are the kids you want your daughter or your son to marry. And they're going to show up at your door and say, Hi, my name is Jacob, and I would like for you to vote for the President of the United States for re-election because he's actually kept the promises that none of us thought he would keep. And my family didn't support him in 2016, but we are in 2020 because he's kept his promises and he's made the country safe. And oh my goodness, have you seen how crazy the Democrats are? Have you seen Mike Bloomberg's ads on you? We're going to get to Mike Bloomberg. Nonetheless, you get my point. The president will have an army of volunteers to go door to door. What did they not have in the Georgia suburbs in 2018? They did not have an army of door knockers. That's why Karen Handel lost in uh, 2018, by the way. There was no mobilized effort by the Republican Party to go door to door. In fact, they told Karen Handel, don't spend your money on this. We're going to spend our money on this. And so she didn't. And then they didn't. And she lost by, what, 2,000 votes. So in addition to the databasing, in addition to the targeting, in addition to the money, in addition to the rallying, in addition to mobilizing the base, they're going to get an army of volunteers they didn't have in 2016. So the president will have for 2020 a campaign apparatus that did not exist for him in 2016 when he still won, even though he lost the popular vote. And there's a slew of polling out in swing states. You know, the overall numbers for Donald Trump are horrible still against the Democrats. But when you actually look at his re-election polling in the swing states and the states he must win, he's almost a pair. He's behind every single one of the Democrats in the CNN poll. You do need to know that. He's behind every single one of the Democrats in the CNN poll. But he's close. He's close. He's where George W. Bush was against John Kerry at the same time in 2004. Yes, he is, actually. John Kerry was ahead of George W. Bush in the polling this time of year, 2004, just like all the Democrats are ahead of ahead of uh, Donald Trump. But we don't actually—we have generic Democrat right now. We don't know who the Democrats' nominee is going to be. It's going to be Joe Biden, but we don't really know for sure yet. Something could change. The polling in New Hampshire for Biden is really bad all of a sudden. 
Things could change. But the president has made the calculation, forget trying to get new people. I'm going to bring out my base, and I'm going to turn out every last one of them, and then I'm going to be so nasty on the Democrats that when people think of going to vote for the Democrat, they're going to say, you know what, I'd rather stay home. And if my base is larger than their base, I win. That's the campaign strategy the president's deploying. That's why he's going to the March for Life. He wants to fire those people up. It just... I said I would talk about Bloomberg. Um, the phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. My son is just turned 11, and he called me last night. I was in Atlanta. I was headed to a meeting, and he wanted to call before I got to the meeting because he knew I wouldn't be able to talk to him the rest of the night. Uh, he hadn't been feeling well, and, and he says, Dad, who is this Mike person? I said, What? He says, this, this Mike person, he, he hates the president, so is he good? My, my kid doesn't care for the president. And, and I said, I, no, no, he's, he's not. And, and Gunner, my, my 11-year-old, says, well, good, because I don't like him because every time I turn on YouTube, he's there. And he's talking about stuff I don't understand, something about health care. <laughs> It's like, yes. Now, my 14-year-old is more attuned to politics. And she says, Dad, this is the other day. She says, Dad, every time I try to watch something on YouTube, a Mike Bloomberg ad comes up, and I really don't like him because of it. <laughs> but, okay, so here's the thing. Um, you can you can advertise on Facebook. You can advertise on YouTube. You can advertise on TV. You, if you go on Facebook or YouTube and you want to put in an ad, you can precisely target who you want to talk to. If you want to, if you want to target an ad towards um, people who are over fifty who routinely buy medical supplies and you want to do a healthcare ad and you want to make sure you want to target the ones who lean center left because you're in a democratic primary, you could do that. Bloomberg's not doing that. Bloomberg is doing no targeting. Bloomberg is a billionaire and he has, he is tar just blanketing advertising, blanketing ads. Uh, his ads are everywhere. They are not targeted. They're just filling up the airwaves. And, and in particular, they're on YouTube. Now, for those of you who think this is a terrible strategy, Mike Bloomberg has gone from nothing to 10% in the polls. Mike Bloomberg is, is rocketing towards Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. He has now surpassed Pete Buttigieg because he's spending a billion dollars on advertising that is not targeted. It's just everywhere. Every time you go online, there's a Mike Bloomberg ad. I mean, you don't have to believe me. Go on YouTube and, and just watch. Spend 10 minutes watching YouTube, and you will see a Mike Bloomberg ad. That is how big it is. That, that is that is how frequently you're going to see, let's see, I'm going to, we're, we're going to conduct it. You, you know, I was a lawyer. I know I should never do something like this. Uh, I'm going to pull up uh, an ad, uh, or I'm going to pull up a um, video. Let's see. Okay. Uh, I, I watched this guy who does uh, cameras. And we're going to randomly click because I know his show always starts with a commercial. And let's see what commercial do we have? Or is it the, the Allstate ad? Bloomberg started as a middle class kid who had to work his way through college, then built a business. <laughs> That's, yep, 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 yep. Okay, let, let me, let me, let me try. Let, let me, okay, I'm going to, let's see, can I randomly, is there, let me, let me do another one. Maybe I've seen too many now. 
nope. Okay, nope. That's not a blue. Okay, second time I didn't get didn't get the Bloomberg. I, I got something about a hornet's nest. Oh well. There, but there there you go. So that's how ubiquitous it is. My goodness. You get Bloomberg ads all over the place. Okay, uh, when we come back, we will get into impeachment. It's not that big a deal, though. It really isn't. So, uh, Mr. Peanut is dead. Dead, Mr. Peanut. They're killing him off in the Super Bowl. You know, as a measure of how much people are paying attention to impeachment... Let's just, and if, and by the way, if Mr. If they have a funeral for Mr. Peanut, is it an open shell funeral? I mean, what, what do we do? So, somebody asked me the other day, was, was, was he boiled alive or assaulted? <laughs> oh, the jokes write themselves. Uh, so if you haven't been paying attention in the Super Bowl uh, ad, Mr. Peanut from Planners Peanuts is going to die. He's going to die. A, a, he's going to die a hero's death. He will save Wesley Snipe and somebody. I didn't even know Wesley Snipe was still around. But anyway, he, he will save them, fall to his death down a ravine and explode or some such. Uh, so I guess they won't have it. He'll be roasted. Um, they won't have an open shell casket. And, and this is big news. It is. It's actually big news that, that, that they're killing. It's a rebranding thing for Planters Peanuts. I don't know what they're going to come out with. I guess I'll have a big funeral. I think Eminem should give the eulogy at the funeral for Mr. Mr. Peanut. In any event, uh, this has gotten more conversation going on social media than impeachment, which tells you everything you need to know about impeachment. The media is still buzzing about John Roberts from uh, two nights ago. They're they're still covering John Roberts. Man, holy cow, uh, Jerry Nadler has stepped in it. So Jerry Nadler, I guess they're putting him in the witness in, in, in uh, witness or uh, what is it the the um oh the 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 witness relocation program because he is not saying a word they he is clearly in the doghouse I mean talk about a, a turn in the Democratic impeachment punch bowl he is they are not happy with him. And they are <laughs> so so. Uh, what's his name? Chuck Schumer was asked a question about Jerry Nadler yesterday, and Chuck Schumer said, "I'm not going to talk about Jerry Nadler. I'm going to talk about whatever." And when Jerry Nadler tried to speak at a press conference, Adam Schiff literally stepped in front of him and said, "I'm doing the talking today." Ooh, he made the chief justice. He made the Republicans mad. He made the Democrats mad. Uh, it is, it's, it's really actually funny to see. So if you don't know what Jerry Nadler did, uh, Jerry Nadler accused the Republican senators, not the House Republicans, but the Senate Republicans, the people who have to be his jurors. Jerry Nadler actually told the Republican senators if they didn't go along with convicting the president then they would be engaged in a cover-up. And the House Republicans and the president's legal team went postal. I mean, they they lit into Jerry Nadler, and the Chief Justice of the United States had to play dead. Poor Chief Justice Roberts 
Do you know Chief Justice Roberts was on uh, the, the, the in in his chair at the Supreme Court yesterday morning, heard multiple oral arguments after being in the Senate until 2 a.m., going home, getting to bed, had to be back at the Senate by 9 a.m., or back at the uh, Supreme Court by 9, to hear oral arguments starting at 10, was there for, I think they heard three cases, uh, some very significant cases yesterday at the Supreme Court, we'll get to later, and then had to, an hour before he had to go to the Senate. Uh, this poor man, pray for is. him. Here, here's the Chief Justice admonishing them, but there's a point, there's a reason I'm replaying this. Bear with me, listen to this again. This is the Chief Justice from two nights ago admonishing both sides, trying to be fair, but really it was Jerry Nadler telling Senate Republicans if they didn't convict the president, they'd be engaged in a cover-up. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the president's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, in the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging, and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that highest standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. I think it is appropriate. Stop. Uh, Darla, by the way, I need to apologize to Darla from Musella. I think I've been through Musella. Darla from Musella tells me I'm talking too fast. I will slow down for Darla from Musella. Darla, only for you am I going to slow down. Thank you for that. I, you know, right as I was thinking, I might have run through that too fast. I get this email from from Darla. <laughs> okay, the media is still talking about the chief justice. The reason the media is still talking about the chief justice from two nights ago is because yesterday was exceedingly boring. It was really boring. If you if you want an honest take of what happened yesterday, let me let me just put it to you this way. If you're a Republican, you thought the Democrats were clowns and the Republicans were good. If you're a Democrat, you thought the Democrats were great and the Republicans were clowns. I mean, that's it. Uh, and, and that's part of the problem here is neither side is trying to woo the other. Now, what is the actual strategy? There actually is a strategy here. Before I get there, though, I, I want to play this for you from Adam Schiff. This is from the debate yesterday. This is from his opening statement yesterday. You do need to hear this. On the basis of this egregious misconduct, the House of Representatives returned two articles of impeachment against the president. First, charging that President Trump corruptly abused the powers of the presidency to solicit foreign interference in the upcoming presidential election for his personal political benefit. And second, that President Trump obstructed an impeachment inquiry into that abuse of power in order to cover up his misconduct. The House did not take this extraordinarily, extraordinary step lightly. As we will discuss, impeachment exists for cases in which the conduct of the President rises beyond mere policy disputes to be decided otherwise and without urgency at the ballot box. Instead, we are here today to consider a much more grave matter, and that is an attempt to use the powers of the presidency to cheat in an election. For precisely this reason, the President's misconduct cannot be decided at the ballot box, for we cannot be assured that the vote will be fairly won. 
in corruptly using his office to gain a political advantage, in abusing the powers of that office in such a way to jeopardize our national security and the integrity of our elections, in obstructing the investigation into his own wrongdoing, the president has shown that he believes that he's above the law. Get this, the election is going to be in doubt. The election will be in doubt. If, if Donald Trump, you know, in October of this year, if the polling is going against the president, and it looks like the president's going to lose, and by the way, there are really a lot of warning signs for this president. There are, and, and we'll deal with them, and we'll talk about them, just so you, you have a clear-eyed view of where we're headed into November. But if in October the winds have decidedly shifted against the president, decisively shifted against the president, the president is going to inevitably come out and say that the election is rigged because he did it in 2016. And what happened in 2016? In October of 2016, when the president did this, the media thoroughly denounced him for casting doubt on the integrity of the electoral process. They'll do it again. But right now with Adam Schiff, the media is echoing what he's saying. The media, the, the media is always willing to give Democrats um, an ability to say that the game is rigged against them and will never allow the Republicans the same. Now, why is that? It is because the media and the Democrats are on the same team. So the talking points permissible for the Democrats, they're never permissible for the Republicans. Republicans are not allowed to cast doubt on the election. After all, it's the Republicans who suppressed the vote. Stacey Abrams said so. Oh, we got Stacey Abrams news we'll get into here in a little while. So, you know, the GOP right now, as a result, is largely ignoring the mainstream media. The, the Republican Party, the, the Republican senators, they're not really going on CNN or MSNBC. They're, they're showing up on Fox News. And, of course, Fox is, is living rent-free in the heads of, of these other reporters and stuff. you you got CNN personalities and MSNBC personalities all attacking Fox News, all attacking Sean Hannity, all attacking Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson. And I, I don't really blame them because when they look up, all they see is, is the backside of Fox News mooning them in the ratings. Their Fox is so much higher than the rest of these people. But it, it's really gotten under their skin, and, and the fact that the Republicans can reach way more people than they could by going on CNN or MSNBC. And listen, I like CNN a lot. I'm not a big fan of MSNBC. I do like a lot of the people at CNN. I'm friends with a lot of them. I worked there for a number of years. I know them. I, I think they're biased. I, I They used to try to work on their bias. I don't think they are anymore, but I like them. I like Fox, too. I worked at Fox for five years. In fact, I've been trading emails this morning with different people from Fox. Good people. But Fox is so dominant, these guys don't have to go on there. And, and as a result, we have two different strategies. The Democrats, it really is precious. The, the Democrats, Adam Schiff in particular, Adam Schiff really is trying to make the argument that Donald Trump is guilty of sin and he needs to be convicted because he's a bad dude and the Russians are playing him and they have completely bought into the mythology of Russia stealing the election. And so they're doing their best to make a case, at least Adam Schiff is. The other Democrats are, are really doing what Jerry Nadler did. They're basically saying it's either our way or, or you're part of the problem. Because the Democrats are hoping if they can make this case and fire up their base and, and get love from the media, that they may be able to take the Senate back this year. The Republican strategy is to put the House of Representatives on trial, and that doesn't play well with the media. There is so much of the media out there attacking uh, the Republicans, attacking the coverage 
of the Republicans, attacking how the Republicans are handling the trial, how the uh, Republican, uh, the president's uh, impeachment team is going about the trial. They're just they're they're mad at the GOP for not willing to actually engage. Uh, Republicans are are making are fighting a fight, and Democrats are fighting a fight, and they're fighting two separate fights. And the media is giving legitimacy to the Democratic fight because this is an impeachment trial. The president's on, on, on the president is being impeached. They're supposed to defend the president, not attack the House. But what the Republicans are are doing is they know a couple of things. One, one, Republicans know the president will not be convicted. Two, Republicans know if they go wobbly on the president, they will be eaten alive by his base. Three, Republicans know if they go wobbly on the president, the base may not show up in November and will hand the Democrats the Senate. Four. Republicans know that the Republicans are so mad at the House and how the House handled this and recognize the House botched it by not calling all the witnesses and then sitting on it for a month while they were saying it was urgently important that they know they have a fundraising opportunity out there to fire people up and get them to the polls in November over the injustice of what happened. Republicans are banking on the fact that this will fire up Republicans more than it fires up Democrats because Republicans know five. Don't you like my counting? Number five, the Republicans know in impeachment there can only be one winner. And they know his name will be Donald Trump. And they know that will enrage the left. And they're hoping that it inspires their side even more. Here's Brad Parscale, the president's campaign manager. We're looking to see what's what's actually what Americans are actually consuming. It's What's funny is if you're in New York or you're in D.C. and you're on these shows, uh, there's a bubble. Yes. There's a big bubble. You get out there and you ask them, hey, what's going on impeachment? They're like, impeachment? You know, I don't even know what's going on. You know, it's like watching paint dry. You actually think impeachment is helping you. I, it does help with the base. It excites the base. Remember, turnout's important. There's tens of millions of people that will show up and vote for the president that might not have showed up. Look, 8.8 million disengaged in 2018. Voted for Trump in 2016, didn't show up. There's millions now that are engaged to show up. And I will tell you, the president has a larger base now significantly than 2016. That's Brad Pascal, the president's campaign manager, saying that the president's base has grown. And again, this is all about base mobilization. This is all about getting people fired up and getting them out. The Republicans know this. They're playing a completely different strategy. And it frustrates the media because the media wants the Republicans to engage with the Democrats' points, and the Republicans aren't engaging with the Democrats' points. They're making their own points, going after the legitimacy of the process. And that's not the way you're supposed to do things. And it prevents that. You know, one of the things, one of the narrative biases of the media is you've got to have a tit for tat. The Democrats say this, the Republicans respond this way. The Republicans say this, the Democrats respond this way. Well, it's hard to do that when the Democrats say X, the Republicans are saying Y and Z, completely different strategy. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. You get my point. It's it's very hard to align them when they're talking past each other. And you've got all the Democratic talking heads saying, oh, the, the, the Democrats are playing this to impeach the president and the Republicans are playing games. No, the Republicans view impeachment itself as a game, and they're not going to play by the rules set by the Democrats. They're going to play by their own rules. And the, the fundamental talking head drivel that you hear on television fundamentally misses that point. The GOP does not care that the president is being impeached because they know he won't be convicted. It's only the media and the Democrats who care. And by the way, most people in America, they don't care either. They're not even paying attention. 
An arrest warrant has been issued for Antonio Brown on a felony charge of burglary and battery, according to ESPN. Brown allegedly threw a rock at a driver of a moving truck before taking part in a battery against him, according to court documents obtained by TMZ. All righty then. I want to uh, spend just a moment on an issue that actually matters because let's be honest, impeachment doesn't actually matter because nothing's going to happen right now. Uh, What actually does matter is the coronavirus, the Wuhan flu. China has now uh, locked down a second city, uh, Hong Gang, uh, Huang Gang, uh, a city of 6 million. So you've got a city of 10 million people and a city of 6 million people, 16 million people minimum who are locked in their cities, unable to leave. Uh, Flights and trains and buses all shut down. Y'all, that means that this uh, Wuhan Wuhan flu, this coronavirus, they now believe, by the way, CNN is reporting that they believe it spread from snakes at the seafood market. Isn't that how the apocalypse begins? First, the snake got Eve to bite the apple, and then the snake spread disease in Wuhan, China, among the commies. And now the communist party, there's a woman, this has now been confirmed by media in, in Paris, a Chinese woman with mild symptoms from the Wuhan flu boarded, a, it took, uh, it took uh, ibuprofen to get rid of her fever, so she had no symptoms, and boarded a flight from China to Paris because there was a restaurant she wanted to eat at. And then she bragged about it on WeChat, the Chinese social media giant, and she was shamed on social media, and the Chinese in in Paris have tracked her down and detained her. Uh, She's now at the Chinese embassy for making China look bad. Ooh, that woman's in for a world world of hurt. But So we've got this thing spreading. You've got 16 million people now in detainment in China. You've got American authorities inspecting at at every major airport, including two dead mayors international airport here in Atlanta. Uh, Hartsfield and Jackson, Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport, they are two dead mayors, and I just always thought it was ridiculous when they decided they needed to add Jackson to Hartsfield. I get the sentiment, but I would much prefer to call it Two Dead Mayors International Airport. So Two Dead Mayors International Airport, you got O'Hare, JFK, LAX, uh, San Francisco, and Miami now, and Detroit is on the way, apparently, in Seattle, uh, are are all having inspections and, and people coming off flights from Asia, not just China now, all of Asia. If you're coming off a flight, there's a laser uh, laser beam thermometer gauge that is going to take your temperature. And if you're having symptoms, they're going to detain you and everyone on the plane who sat next to you. There's the Wuhan flu spreads. Now, we do have one person in isolation in the United States. That's it. We only have one case in the United States, which is actually, given how contagious this is and how quickly it has spread... Throughout Asian countries, it's in now South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, uh, Vietnam, Thailand. Uh, I think there's now been a case reported in Singapore as well and one in Canada, I think. Uh, And there's only one in the United States. And in Canada and the United States, it's not spreading. Why is that? It's because unlike the commies and the third world countries, we have good health care here. 
and even like Japan and South Korea are being proactive. Yeah, let, let me just, I, I, this is my broken record moment because I've said this, but it's worth repeating. You should watch the Chernobyl series on HBO if you haven't. It is a fabulous series. Uh, HBO does such good work. I, I, AT&T is totally going to ruin that channel. Uh, but in any event, they've done great work. And one of the things you get from the Chernobyl series is the reason the Chernobyl meltdown was so bad is that the communists who were in charge could not admit that there was a problem. They could not admit there was a problem because they knew it could be their lives. They could be killed by the government and their families killed by the government if they admitted there was a problem. So there was a level of denial and they refuse to admit it. And during the night, as the as the reactor starts to burn down, they can't admit it. They can't acknowledge it. They can't call. And that causes a cascade failure. It, it causes a chain reaction. And the whole thing goes, goes kablooey. And you finally had to have some people who came in who just did not care that anyone was going to get blamed and fix the problem. Because there was a chain of command that was based on lies. And that exists in every single communist regime. When, when you, as a Communist Party employee, know that you could die for making a mistake as opposed to just losing your job. You're not going to tell people when you screw up. Or more importantly, you're going to find a fall guy. And I guarantee you that in, in commie land China right now, the Chai Coms are out there trying to find a fall guy for this. Right now it's the snake, but it's going to be a person. It's going to be health officials in Wuhan, China, the local Communist Party officials. They're going to be in a world of hurt over this. Some of them are probably going to disappear. And in the meantime, the rest of us are having to deal with this. But I'm telling you all, they're saying 500 people are infected. You don't shut down two cities of a total of 16 million people if only 500 people are infected. It's got to be way more than that. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show are all over the place now. Uh, not just in Georgia, but mostly in Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be, well, you know, you, okay, you can't actually call in today. Um, the the call screener uh, had a doctor's appointment, so you can't call me, uh, but that's fine. Uh, I, I can take phone calls, but I have to route them a certain way, and I'm going to have a guest uh, with me at the bottom of the hour, a good friend of mine, actually, Tim Chapman. He's the president of Heritage Action for America. Uh, I got things I need to talk to him about, uh, and you can you can be in on the conversation. I, I want to get in the weeds with you here for just a minute on the program. Uh, we, we Everybody's spending so much time on impeachment, and I don't want to minimize uh, impeachment. But there's still a lot of other stuff going on, and I, I want to go back to Mike Bloomberg for just a minute, if, if you'll let me do that. Um, Bloomberg is spending millions of dollars. In fact, you know what? I, this this is bad guest hosting skill. If you ever get on talk radio, don't do what I'm about to do. Um, but I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, I'm sure I will have someone on my team lecture me for having done this. Um, I'm Googling. How much has Mike Bloomberg spent on his campaign? Oh, look, I'm not the only one Googling this. Uh, let's see. Uh, he has spent, oh, here we go. Oh, ah! Really? Wow. He has already spent over $100 million. A hundred million. Oh, wait, no. Whoa. <laughs> Wow, this is from the New York Times from the 11th of this month. 
Already, Mr. Bloomberg has spent more than $200 million on advertising, putting him on pace to spend by early March about the same as what Barack Obama's campaign spent on advertising over the course of the entire 2012 election. $200 million. Holy cow. Now, I want to explain this for now. Bloomberg is a billionaire and he doesn't have to care, but I, I'm wondering if, if I, I Bloomberg, y'all, we're going to do campaign politics 101. I, I used to be a campaign strategist. Uh, so I worked for a law firm uh, in Macon, Georgia for a number of years, and I love politics and started running campaigns through my law firm, Selling Melton, in, in downtown Macon. If you've ever been to Macon, you see the big white building that says Ficklin Company Top. Uh, if you're headed uh, towards Savannah, if you see the courthouse dome, you look on the far right side, three windows down, that was my office. It was on the 14th floor, which is actually the 13th floor, but it was the 14th floor because people do that. Uh, and I, I would run campaigns around the nation from inside that little office. Uh, if, if I ever had the money, you people need to advertise on my radio show so I can get the money. I would love to actually live stream my show from up there on the 14th floor with that view of, of the city of Macon behind me. Uh, and, and build an actual like TV studio for this radio show. One day, it's in the plan. Uh, i got to get advertisers first. Uh, um, but in any event, uh, I would run campaigns from up there. And I, went, I, I liked campaigns and politics more than, uh, more than being a lawyer, frankly. I would probably still be a lawyer, but there was this thing I had to deal with called a client. And clients typically had very obvious problems that they refused to solve because they hated the people they were in a dispute with. And I just was fed up with it. I uh, didn't much care for it and, and loved the transactional part, but didn't think I could sustain myself as a transactional lawyer uh, in middle Georgia without having to also go to court. I hated going to court. Uh, and, and I wound up running political campaigns. I ran county races. I ran state legislative races. I ran uh, congressional races. I was a deputy lawyer for President Bush. Uh, I, I loved campaigns. One of the things you need to understand about campaigns, and it's something I did not do because I was a lawyer at the time. And I was getting paid by the hour for these campaigns. We Eventually, I would get to, to flat fee. I started out being a campaign lawyer, and I was running a congressional race where the campaign manager became so passive-aggressive with even the candidate, he wouldn't return people's phone calls. And so I wound up having to run the campaign, uh, even as a lawyer. And I, I was charging my legal right. I eventually got to flat fees and, and win bonuses and things like that. But one of the things I wouldn't do, because I was a lawyer and I did not think it was appropriate under the legal ethics rules— I would not charge commissions for media buys. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you go, if you are a, if you're a buyer for for media, and I realize this is someone in the weeds, but it's desperately important that you understand this. If if I go to the local radio station or TV station, and it is a hundred dollars for a thirty second ad, that is a hundred dollars for a thirty second ad. So some media companies will say, we will deduct 15% of that price. So we will charge you $85 for the ad buy, Mr. Consultant, and you can keep, for bringing your candidate to us, you can keep the $15 as your commission. But it's going to be, the, the, the rate will be $100. What a lot of media companies now do, though, is they say our ad rate is $100, and if you want a commission, you're going to charge your client uh, 
going rate will be 15%, you're going to charge your client $115 for the ad buy for that 30 seconds. So the the candidate gets the bill from the media buyer, and the bill for the ad is $115, even though the ad is actually only $100, because $15 is the commission for the media consultant. But the media consultant isn't just getting the 15% commission. The media consultant is also getting money for filming the ad, for producing the ad, for editing the ad, for dubbing the ad, for all of that stuff. He's got all of that, and he gets a commission. Just like the mail guy, the, the mail guy gets a commission too. It costs you $1,000 for mail. Typically, the, the mail guy gets 10% as a commission. So you're, you're, you are, you're charging $1,000. Your actual bill for the mail is, is $1,100, and the media consultant gets, gets $100. Um, it, it's, that's the way it works in campaigns. It, it is very commissions-based. This is a perfect segue for me to tell you that this hour is sponsored by Dynamic Money. Uh, my buddy Chris Byrne, who is a fee-only uh, financial consultant, financial planner, financial advisor, fee-only, meaning he is not going to recommend a product to you because he gets a commission. He does not make a commission at all. Did you know, by the way, I learned this the other day and not from him. Only 7% of financial planning firms in this country are fee-only, meaning that they don't sell you a product and make a commission off of it. Uh, they just give you straight advice and they serve as primary care physicians. May say They'll go to your investment guy and work with him. They'll go to your life insurance guy, work with him. They'll go to your mortgage guy. They'll go to your estate planner. Uh, but they themselves don't make a commission. It's, it's flat fee. Now, Chris, uh, just so you know, uh, Chris Burns and Dynamic Money, they will. And, and full disclosure, they are, they are my retirement planner. Uh, they have my, my 401k and an IRA. They manage. Uh, I, I let them, and they do get like 1% of a fee, which is standard in the industry. Uh, but they don't make a commission. So I know when Chris tells me I need to do X, Y, and Z, I need to get my house refinanced, or I need to to put money in this mutual fund or take this life insurance and, and because it's better than this one, that he's not making any money off that. He's just giving me straight advice. Uh, dynamicmoney.com is the website. Good people, really good people, really honest people. Uh, and and it's, it's nice to know they're not making money off of me by giving me advice. They're just making money because... They give me advice, and I pay them for the advice. Uh, in any event, uh, so the com but the commissions base is so campaigns are so covered in commissions, and a lot of consultants will deny that they take the commissions, and they still do. And it, it is it's it's just it, it's funny to see. So the reason I bring up the commissions, and, and I, if, if you're still with me, and I haven't lost you, and, and I'm sorry, I needed to go down that tangent to get you to this point. Mike Bloomberg's media consultants are commissions-based. One of the things that Barack Obama did for his campaign in 2012 that had not been done before is he put all of these people on salary for his campaign. And what Barack Obama did in 2012 is he said, I am the president of the United States. I am going to win re-election. And if you work for me on my campaign, doing my media, you will become a multimillionaire in the future doing other candidates' campaigns because I will recommend you. And what happened was what happened with me if you hired me as a political consultant when I was a lawyer. You got a better deal. Obama got a really good deal because none of those people were on commission. They couldn't milk him for it. 
They weren't charging him for the ad crew. They weren't charging him for the production. They weren't charging him for the editing. They weren't charging him for the dubbing. They weren't charging him for the lighting. They weren't charging him for, for any of it. And they weren't charging him a commission because they were 100% payrolled by the Obama campaign on the future, uh, on the promise of future wealth. Bloomberg doesn't have that option because no one actually thinks that Bloomberg can win. So Mike Bloomberg doesn't have a staff that's doing advertising. He has an outside media consulting firm, and he's paying the outside media consulting firm to design his ads, and then they're placing his ads. And when they place his ads, he gets a commission, and they're not targeting his ads. The other thing you do is, for example, uh, and and I'll use a real-world example for me. I was running a campaign, and when was this? Uh, It was in 2002. I was running the campaign of a preacher who was running for Congress. And the preacher wanted to do a faith-based buy. It was March for Life. So it was this week. It was this week in 2002. Uh, We're in a primary, and he wants to do a faith-based ad buy, and he wants to target people uh, who uh, who like the March for Life. And we didn't have Facebook and and Twitter and and YouTube and all that at the time. So you know what we had? We had church directories. We had a church directory for every single church in the congressional district. We had paid people to put that information in a database. They had put it in a database, and we were able to mail just to people who went to church. But but we had something else. The Republicans had something called Voter Vault at the time, which you, if you were a Republican candidate, you had access to Voter Vault. And what Voter Vault did is it, combined, it compiled massive amounts of consumer information. This is accessible to you, by the way. If you're advertising on social media, you can do ver- something very much like this. You couldn't do it to the extent back in the day because of all, all that the hyper detail. But you could say, okay, I want to do a pro-life, anti-abortion, pro-life mail piece, making clear I'm right on life. I want to target all of the people in these churches, but I only want to target the ones who regularly show up in Republican primaries. There's no reason for you in a primary to run an ad campaign against someone who's not even going to show up and vote. And you know someone's not going to show up and vote in the primary if they've never showed up before. The way you find this out is you go to the Secretary of State. Any single Anybody listening to my voice right now can do this. You go to the Secretary of State and you ask for the list of voters, and they give you a CD— And when you open that CD, it is a massive Excel spreadsheet that you can import into a database, and it shows you uh, who votes in primaries and who votes in generals and who votes in runoffs. And you can say, okay, I only want to target people who vote in Republican primaries, and I only want to target people who voted in the last three Republican primaries, which means the odds are they're going to vote in this coming Republican primary. And in this church list, I want to cross-reference this church list to those people. And I want to weed out from the church list all of the people who don't vote in the Republican primary. So now you've got all the church lists, all the church directories from everywhere in the congressional district. You've le- you've weeded out all the people who don't vote in Republican primary, so you're saving money. You're not hitting people who aren't going to vote. And from there... You're going to add to it, and you can go out and you can get a database of people who've given money to pro-life groups and and pro-life causes and people who give to Catholic charities, and and all these lists are for rent. And and you lay them over. You say, I have now a really good profile of who the pro-life voters are, and I'm going to send my mail piece just to these people. And it flies under the radar. 
because the reporters aren't getting it. The rest of the Republicans aren't getting it. The, the, the opposition probably isn't getting it. You're targeting Christians who regularly vote and give to pro-life causes, your pro-life mail piece, and nobody else sees it. Nobody even knows it's out there. You know, George W. Bush actually did this to, to marvelous effect in 2004. There were issues in Virginia, and, and, and President Bush wanted to win Virginia. And President Bush targeted uh, a water issue in rural Virginia and started hitting the voters with that issue. And it flew under the radar completely. No one paid attention to it. And the president wound up winning those counties. I can't remember if he won Virginia overall or not, but he won all the areas where he targeted because it was a micro-targeted mail campaign that no one in the media knew about because they weren't living there. It wasn't nationally known, and it was only to those people. And he got all of their votes by making an issue because that was the issue they cared about. Karl Rove was a master of micro-targeting. There's no reason to do, particularly in the in the age of, of digital media, there is no reason to, to run an ad on YouTube that everyone in America sees when you only want pro-life Christians between the age of 30 and 40 who smoke to see the ad. And it's possible to actually do that demographic profile. And no one else sees it. But you've got their vote. Bloomberg's not doing that. Bloomberg is doing the massive, massive ad buy. He wants every single person to see his ads, and it's working. It's working. He spent $200 million, and he's gone up to 10% of the polls. He's now higher than Buttigieg and, and, and the rest of them. Only Warren Sanders and Biden are ahead of him, and he's rapidly gaining on Warren. It's working. The problem is, for Mike Bloomberg, he's one, he's making consultants filthy rich off the commissions. And two... Does it even matter? Because Bloomberg can do this because no one's taking him seriously right now. Wait until the Democrats do to him what they've begun to do to Bernie Sanders. They are destroying Bernie Sanders all of a sudden on his record. The attacks on Bernie Sanders are coming fast and furious as he gains in the polls, and they will do it to Bloomberg, too, the moment they actually see in their polling that he actually is a threat. Right now, Bloomberg is doing very well in national polling, but he's not doing so well in local polling. Why? Because he's scattershot polling across the nation, scattershot polling across the nation, is, is picking up the buzz throughout the states, but he's not on the ballot in all of those states. And by the way, he's not going to be on the ballot in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, the early states where candidate momentum matters. You should join my army of activists. You should. You should text ARMY to 33777. Uh, what is it? Well, it is my, my activist list. Those of you who want to be engaged in politics and make it very easy. Uh, like, for example, at the beginning of this week, we fired up the Activist Center and everybody who's on the list got either a text message or an email with a link. And when you click the link, it connected you to Kelly Leffler and David Perdue or your other senators if you're out of, out of Georgia so that you could tell them to to stop the impeachment effort and just let the voters deal with this in November. Now, if you want to connect into the Action Center and see it for yourself, you don't even have to you don't have to do anything. If you just want to see what this is all about, uh, text the word impeachment to 52886. Text the word impeachment to 52886 and that will send you back a link to the Action Center so you can see what it's all about. 
And then when you decide, hmm, I think I do want to be an activist for this sort of stuff, because we got some fights coming up in the Georgia legislature, and we're going to need activists, and it's going to need all hands on deck for the activist center. Uh, when you decide you want to be one of the activists who gets the emails and gets the gets the text messages to be able to call your state legislature or to call your congressman or your senator, depending on the issue, and we don't just do this in Georgia. If you're listening out of Georgia, uh, we got a lot of listeners in Texas in the activist center, and when the legislature meets in Texas, they rarely meet in Texas, but when they do— we send action alerts there as well. All over the country, we send action alerts. Uh, the way you get on the Army is you text the word Army to 33777. Text the word Army to 33777, and uh, you will be an activist. Uh, we, we will send you, we will keep you informed by email or by text message what's happening in the legislature, the things you need to know. Uh, it, it's a good way for you to be involved, and we make it so easy for you. We really do. I don't believe that someone – I know the profile. You, you want to know – I'll give you some marketing research on my program. And again, this is these are, these are very generic things, uh, and it, it probably doesn't apply to you. The average age of a listener of this program is 42 years old. The average person listening to this program is a man who is married and has two children. This man who listens to this program listens because he actually he's a smart person who wants to get smarter, and he's an informed person who wants to be more informed, uh, and he's the influence uh, leader and, and opinion generator of all of his friends, and so he listens here. Uh, but he would much rather prefer he would much rather be engaged to, to ESPN and, and Sports Illustrated and sports and not news. And he floats in and out of this program and the resurgent and wants to be engaged in politics. And I try to make it as easy for him and you and everyone else as possible because you got a job, you got a life, you got a family. But sometimes you actually do need to pick up the phone or, or send an email and I can help you. But you got to text the word ARMY to 33777 and I will show you how easy it is. When we come back, Tim Chapman from Heritage Action is going to join me. What does happen to the GOP in the age of Trump and after? Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation now, really uh, Georgia show, but we're expanding. We continue to expand. If you want to advertise, well, drop us a line because I could use average. I'd really like to start earning a salary here. <laughs> In any event, the phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Joining me by phone from uh, Washington, D.C., the, the most exciting place in America today, I guess, for people who have insomnia, is uh, my buddy Tim Chapman from Heritage Action for America. Tim, welcome. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So I want to talk to you in, in particular because you and I have had these conversations so much. And you had a great piece a while back in Politico of uh, 2020 and beyond for the GOP. It, it's something that I know a lot of people are talking about. And there are areas of the country where the president himself doesn't play well, but the policies do. And, and whether the president wins or loses, he can't run again for office. And I don't know what the Republican Party stands for anymore. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, regardless of what people may feel about President Trump, I think we can all acknowledge one thing, and that's that in 2016, he was successful in pulling a different kind of coalition together uh, at the ballot box and, and compared to what Republicans before him had pulled together. And the really notable thing about what he was able to accomplish was that he was able to bring working class voters in states like Michigan and states like Wisconsin and states like Pennsylvania into the fold. Um, and he did this, I think, in a, in a mix of two ways. One was just by, you know, personality. Um, but the other was really that he was 
a little bit heterodox on some of the issues that, you know, the Republican Party had been uh, standing on for years, things like trade and manufacturing, um, working class issues. And so I think what the, ch- the challenge for us is, you know, as we think about the future of the Republican Party, this president's not always going to be on the ballot for us. Um, and so what is it that we need to learn from 2016 um, that helps us to keep this coalition together over the long term. And, you know, as a, as a guy who's been involved in public policy all my life, I, I think we've got to focus on the policy. And you've got to say, what are the particular policy areas that can help keep this governing coalition together and kind of be a, a glue that holds it together over the next decade? Well, I want want to read back to you some of your words from this political piece. Um, you talk about the survey uh, that Heritage Action did, uh, and you said the goal was simple, to find out what issues currently motivate the coalition that elected Donald Trump and Republicans. We found that the GOP isn't connecting the dots between its own innate conservative principles and voters' preferences, which our polling reveals are more similar than many realize. As a result, the crucial swing voters in the middle identify the Republican Party as the party of Trump and his outsized personality instead of the party of economic progress and cultural stability. Our study also pointed to a way to unify Republican voters while drawing an independent, moderate Democrat Democrats, suburbanites, working-class swing voters with a strong conservative platform focused on four areas, immigration, culture, the workforce, and economic fairness. Uh, yeah, uh, Let me yeah. focus real quick on, on the economic fairness one, because I know you and I both like uh, Calvin Coolidge, and uh, one of my favorite quotes from Coolidge is that the, the role of government is this, to make sure there's a level playing field for everyone to compete. And I, it seems like both sides right now are more interested in helping their core donors and supporters and, and whoever the lobbyists give them attention as opposed to just leveling the playing field. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's what's happened over the, over the course of the last couple of decades is the parties have kind of just uh, moved more towards their donor bases. They've forgotten the common guy in the middle of the country. Right. And as they've done that, they've done it to their own peril. And then along comes this guy who's this former reality TV star and a business guy from New York and doesn't really know the Republican canon, doesn't really care about the Democratic canon, and kind of speaks off the cuff. And because he's able, he was doing that, he was able to bring those folks in. And on the economic fairness issue, I mean, there is a lot of opportunity for us, and there's more opportunity now than there was, I think, um, when we did that polling a year ago or or, uh, six months ago. And the reason is because the Democratic Party is going so far left. And if you are able to juxtapose some of the kind of common sense, practical solutions that Republicans could promote versus, say, canceling all student loan debt or versus, say, Medicare for all or whatever, we're able to actually be pretty successful there. I mean, one of the areas I really like to focus on, and I think there's an opportunity for Republicans, is on the issue of, um, of job training, vocational training, reinvigorating the idea that there is nobility in all sorts of work, right? right. Um, every job is a good job. If it's providing for uh, a, a basic wage to raise a family and to be a good upstanding member of your community, there is a lot of dignity in that. But we've kind of gotten away from that and we've said, no, everybody's gotta go do your four-year college degree. Everybody's gotta have this certain kind of job that fits into their you know preconceived views of what a successful future looks like. And I think we need to be the party of work. Um, and the, the president kind of has gotten that. And I think that's one of the reasons he stays afloat in these Midwestern uh, 
states. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. This goes back to the blue-collar voter phenomenon. There, there seems to be this disparagement. We we saw it actually here in Georgia in 2018, right after the Hurricane Michael came through and devastated South Georgia. Stacey Abrams, the Democrats' candidate, went to South Georgia and, and said, "You know, you don't have to grow up on a farm and be a farmer and work in the service and hospitality industry. You can actually go to the city and, and get a better job." And a, a lot of people actually found that deeply insulting. And this seems to be something the Democrats routinely kind of say. Yeah, it's it's it, it is insulting though, isn't it? I mean, I mean the, the the direction that the Democrats want to go, they want to put everybody through the exact same program, which is you kind of do you do your K through twelve, and then you go to a four year liberal arts school, and you get a degree, and who knows what, and doesn't matter that you graduate with one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt and a degree that's worthless. Um, but that's good for them because it kind of puts everyone in the same cookie cutter mentality, not to mention what's happening to students when they go onto these college campuses and get indoctrinated for four years. So I think we've got a real opportunity there to say, look, we see all sorts of avenues in life as viable avenues towards a successful and happy life. Um, and we're not going to look down our noses at people who may want to do things differently. So how do you've got Democrats now that they're they're pitching the we're going to we're going to basically make college free, which doesn't work anywhere it's been tried. And you've also got Democrats now admitting that if you if you've paid your college student loans off, well, you're not getting that money back. We're only going to pay off college student loans for people who who can't pay it back, which just, I think, incentivizes people to not do it. How do Republicans then really make the case, particularly to millennial voters who seem to lean left already, that uh, our way actually is better? This is one of those issues that uh, when we talked about in that piece that you just referenced, economic fairness, this is one that just jumps right out to me Um, because what they're proposing with this free college and student loan forgiveness uh, program, first of all, everybody knows, anyone who knows Economics 101, nothing's free. Someone's going to pay for it, right? Well, who's going to pay for this? At the end of the day, the people who will be taking advantage of it, the people who go to college, who tend to be largely middle to upper middle class, are going to be getting a free ride from all the people who are working class. So actually their policy is incredibly regressive. And that, and the, the Republican conservative policy is the true progressive policy on this. So I like being able to highlight the hypocrisy of the left. And say, look, Elizabeth Warren says she's this, you know, forward-looking progressive, but her policies at the end of the day are punishing the people who aren't going to be able to take advantage of her policies. You know, you you, you say that, and, and it reminds me, Roger Scruton, who, who died, had this great quote, totalitarian ideologies are adopted because they rationalize resentment and also unite the resentful around a common cause. Totalitarian systems arise when the resentful, having seized power, proceed to abolish the institutions that conferred power on other institutions like law, poverty, and religion, which create hierarchies, authorities, and privilege, which enable individuals to assert sovereignty over their own lives. That, that seems to to be the the galvanizing argument for the Democrats right now is is a a fostering resentment in the country and I do having reread the political piece it, it does seem to be you, you can kind of draw out of it there is this still innate optimism among the American citizenry that I don't necessarily know that political leaders on either side of the aisle really embrace anymore yeah I think that's right and I think the, the political leaders on both sides of the aisle have a very skeptical view of the American public and. Um, and I think that when you saw people come out in 2016, you know, 
supporting the president, they were basically saying, look, there is an opportunity here to make the country great again. Um, there is a lot of pent up potential. Um, there are jobs wanted signs all across this country. How do we get the right people in those jobs? How do we get them to have the skills that they need to be in those jobs? Like that is the true challenge before us. And politics in so many ways is holding us back. In so many ways is dragging us down because it's this red team versus blue team. But you know, you know this, and, and as we go across the country and meet with people who sign up to be activists with us, like the day to day lives of the American people are really impressive and really amazing, and people are resilient and ready to do something. But um, but the politics of the moment preys way too much on envy, um, way too much on um, fear, and um, and that's something that you know we do well as a Republican Party to think about how to overcome. Now, before you get out of here, uh, let's talk about uh, Heritage Action for America. And people want the website, heritageaction.com. Uh, in fact, I, I just went to the website and I see the, the Project 2020, and, and there you are in the video at, at the top. Um, what, what, what are you guys at Heritage Action actually, what's your goal this year as far as the election and advocacy goes? Yeah, th- thanks for the opportunity to talk about that, Eric. We're, we're going to be engaged in some key swing states, states like Wisconsin, states like Pennsylvania, North Carolina. Um, and we'll be knocking on hundreds of thousands of doors in those states. And they'll be data-driven. The door knocking is data-driven. We are seeking to go talk to people who are persuadable in those states. We're not going to seek to drive out our base. Our base is plenty you know, excited. Uh, we're not going to go try to convert the 35% of this country that are dyed-in-the-wool progressives. Um, we're going to try to talk to the people in the middle and we're going to say, look, here's how, you know, we're going to, we're going to have that conversation you and I just had about uh, Elizabeth Warren's student loan debt with people. Um, and we're going to go in and say, look, this is why this policy actually hurts people. Um, and, and at the end of the day is not going to make your life better off. Um, so we want to do that and we want to do it focused on policy and then turn people out to vote, um, in this, uh, 2020 election for the policies we care about. For me, the most important thing, one of the most important things as we as we go into elections is you've got to adjudicate the policies ahead of the election. And you gotta do it in such a way so that you can have a mandate after. You remember 2017 when we won the House, the Senate, and the presidency, and then we couldn't repeal and replace Obamacare. Well, that was a very simple reason why. We never decided before that election what we were gonna replace it with. So we want to be the organization that's out there trying to talk about the issues and build a mandate for them uh, before an election. Well, listen, I, best of luck to you. And, and people can go to heritageaction.com and, and figure out how to get involved. But tell people real quick uh, about the Sentinel program and, and how to become a Sentinel. Yeah, Sentinel is our group of activists. These are folks who are really committed to their communities, who have deep roots in their communities and an authentic presence. Um, we think that the best kind of activism is people with those deep roots. Um, and so we partner with folks across this country who care about the issues that we care about. Um, and they'll work with us. They'll come to Washington with us. They'll talk to their members of Congress. Uh, they'll be a leader in their community, uh, be an advocate for the policies we care about. And if folks are interested in that, they can sign up for the Sentinel program at heritageaction.com. Um, we'd love to have more folks helping us. We're building a movement across the country because policy matters. Tim Chapman, listen, it's we need to do this more often, and it's good to hear your voice. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, thanks, Eric. Great to hear your voice, too. Talk to you soon, man. All righty. That's Tim Chapman. He's the executive director of Heritage Action for America. Go to heritageaction.com. I have a lot. Listen, Tim and I are friends, just full disclosure. Tim and I have known each other, gosh, 
a decade or so, uh, maybe more than that. Uh, great, great guy. Uh, good conservative, uh, worked in the Senate, worked with Jim DeMint, uh, helped get Heritage Action off the ground, had spent time at Heritage, uh, solid conservative guy, uh, great group. If you want to find out more, if you want to get involved, the Sentinel program is actually a really cool program. Uh, some of the most informed uh, political activists I know are Sentinels with Heritage Action. And the way you do this is you go to heritageaction.com and there's a little link that says become a Sentinel. And you click that link, you can figure it out. Uh, it's it's a good program. I love Heritage Action. I love the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I Man, I grew up in a family where we would get the Heritage Foundation calendar. Uh, so go to heritageaction.com right now if you want to find out more. I bet you didn't know the doomsday clock was still a thing. R remember the doomsday clock ba back when I was like a little kid? It was a big deal. <gasps> Ronald Reagan got elected. The doomsday clock is the closest it's been to nuclear war. That was basically, it was it was a, a thing that the, the dirty hippies and commies did to try to scare people. Um, and they, they came up with the, the doomsday clock, uh, the bulletin of atomic scientists and it, it's it's always been used as a fear tactic to to um to try to figure out what it, it's it, it's just a bunch of leftists but they send out these they send out these these press releases and the media's like oh it's the doomsday clock we're all gonna die i mean here it is from january 25th of 2018 the world is closer to a nuclear annihilation than at any point since the first hydrogen bomb. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists announced it had moved its doomsday clock to two minutes before midnight, citing North Korea's missile test. <gasps> oh, look, there's Lawrence Krauss. Hey, that Lawrence Krauss, the, the, the scientist who's involved with the doomsday clock. <gasps> Over to you, ArizonaCentral.com. Lawrence Krauss, a well-known theoretical physicist at Arizona State University, announced Sunday he's retiring from the school after an investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct. A BuzzFeed news story earlier this year contained allegations of inappropriate comments and behavior from multiple women. After the story, Arizona State University put Krauss on paid administrative leave and began an investigation. An ASU dean had recommended Krauss be fired and stripped of his role of the Origins Project, which holds workshops and events focused on the origins of the universe and life. Uh, that gives you a sense of the people involved there with the doomsday clock. <gasps> so, okay, they moved the hand to two minutes before midnight at this time last year. And now, oh my gosh, <gasps> it's a hundred seconds to midnight. Wait a second. Wait a second. So it's only 20 more seconds from last year? <laughs> no, 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 no. Seriously, seriously, seriously. This is the story. I mean, here it is. Here it is. For, for this, this is this is January 25th, 2018. The, the doomsday clock at two minutes to midnight. What is two minutes? Two minutes is 120 seconds. <laughs> So here on January 23rd, 2022 years later, two years later, <laughs> it's moved 20 seconds. What? <laughs> oh my gosh. These people are parodies of themselves. Y'all, 
it, it's 100 seconds until nuclear annihilation. Let's see. By the time I go to commercial break, we'll have all died. <laughs> oh, these people. You just, you can't. Oh, my goodness. Which reminds me, speaking of these doomsday people, Greta Thunberg is back. That's right. Uh, first of all, uh, so Steve Mnuchin is uh, under attack from woke activists. Uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, was asked in Davos, Switzerland, what he thinks of Greta Thunberg. And he said, frankly, she needs to go back to school and finish her education. Uh, and, and then maybe she can form an opinion. But until she actually gets to school, gets through school and learns everything, why should we listen to her? <gasps> You've insulted St. Greta. You can't insult St. Greta. She will be extra scowly now. It is amazing how the media props this child up. A child who did not even finish school, who dropped out of school, whose parents have, have humored her, who who essentially, I mean, she's acted like she runs a hostage operation with her family. Uh, her mother had to give up her international career. They, they've guilted her. Uh, that She's guilted them into, into giving up their entire lifestyle and traveling and everything else and all to, to, to placate a child. Now, listen, I listen to my children. My, my children come up with insightful and humorous and funny things, but... I'm the parent, and I am in charge, and it is my job to parent them. And it would be irresponsible of me to put my child on a yacht owned by a prince to sail across the Atlantic Ocean to go scowl at people in New York City and tell them we're all going to die. And whether you want to admit it or not, if she is on the spectrum, has Asperger's or autism or what, she she does have a mental condition where she takes things very literally. She doesn't have an emotional connection. And they say it's her superpower, but the weakness is you can tell her something and she's going to take it literally, not seriously. And so when they tell her that she's got 10 years left to live, she takes it literally. When all these other people are like, oh, no, we've got 10 years, but we'll be fine. I feel so sorry for this child. Listen, listen to, to Thunberg. She at, was at Davos scowling. The facts are clear, but they are still too uncomfortable for you to address. You just leave it because you think it's too depressing and people will give up. But people will not give up. You are the ones who are giving up. I wonder what will you tell your children was the reason to fail and leave them facing a climate chaos that you knowingly brought upon them. That it seemed so bad for the economy that we decided to the resign the idea of securing future living conditions without even trying? Our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. And we are telling you to act as if you loved your children above all else. To imply that people don't love their kids because they disagree. I actually feel really badly for Greta Thunberg, who who, who really believes this stuff and is, and is distraught over this stuff. And so much of this stuff is overblown hooey. And yet she believes it. And everyone tells her it's true. And now she's convinced that you must not love your children if you disagree on this stuff, which is just, it's sad to see. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, now slipping outside the bounds of the Peach State. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number, except uh, you can't actually call in because 
the call screener had a doctor's appointment. So that's where we'll, we'll deal with that later. Oh, what was I going to talk about? I guess I should give an impeachment update again for those of you who weren't here the first hour. Uh, the impeachment update is there. There isn't a ton uh, to update you on. It's just it's really not that exciting. It's really not that impressive. It's really not that anything. It, it's it's the Democrats think the Democrats are good. The Republicans think the Republicans are good. The media is still fixated on John Roberts from two nights ago, admonishing everyone because they're so bored by the impeachment process. And, you know, you should pray for John Roberts in all seriousness. If you're a praying type, pray for the chief justice of the United States. He's got to man the Supreme Court and impeachment. Uh, he's doing it all uh, as as best he can, uh, he was very aggressive. That, so there was a big Supreme Court case yesterday out of Montana uh, with the Blaine Amendment. If you don't know what the Blaine Amendment is, uh, the Blaine Amendments came about in the in the 1800s as the Irish began immigrating to the United States, uh, the Irish Catholics, and started setting up Catholic schools. There was an anti-Catholic, anti-Irish uh, moral panic in the country, and a number of states passed uh, amendments, I think named James Blaine, who, who was a senator, and essentially, Georgia, by the way, has had a Blaine Amendment uh, on in its constitution prohibits spending money on uh, anything having to do with religion at all. No money can be spent. And this was because Catholic schools were explicitly Catholic. And really, Protestants, there were only a handful of Protestant schools in the country at the time. And so they wanted to prohibit Catholic education and, and starve money from Catholic schools. And it, it was all because of anti-Catholic hatred. Well, Montana has a Blaine Amendment. And Montana has a school funding program where money flows to schools and they prohibit it going to religious schools and uh, they have been sued. Now, one of the contentious issues here is that it doesn't go any, no secular school or sectarian school that is private in Montana gets money. And so there is that issue there. Um, but it, it, it is designed to go after Blaine amendments, this lawsuit. And the chief justice was on the, on the bench yesterday and was very hostile to the Blaine amendment, uh, along with the other conservatives. Uh, but the issue is, did, does this mother have standing to sue when Montana prohibits money going to any uh, private school regardless? And, and in my mind, there's an issue there, and conservatives are overplaying their hand on this issue. Uh, it is a big deal, and we need to eradicate the Blaine Amendments. I'm just not sure this is the case to do it. But in any event, pray for the Chief Justice because uh, that man is a machine this week. He's the hardest working man in Washington, quite literally, with everything he's got to do, and and he's got to suffer through it. The other thing is the people in the media who are suffering through some of this. Lindsey Graham uh, yesterday went off on the Democrats in the media. I want to play this for you. That's one of the things that got Nixon in trouble. He fired the prosecutor. So here's what... I saw yesterday. I saw an effort to ask the Senate to ignore every privilege that President Clinton was able to exercise, Nixon was able to exercise, and to suggest to the Senate that an independent judiciary really is a non-player. If I were the president, I wouldn't cooperate with these guys at all. I'm the same guy that said, you can't fire Mueller. I encouraged him to work with Mueller. Mueller is a man of the law. Schiff, Nadler, and Pelosi impeached this president in 48 days. I wouldn't give them the time of day. They're on a crusade to destroy this man. And they don't care what they destroy 
in the process of trying to destroy Donald Trump. I do care. So to my Democratic colleagues, you can say what you want about me, but I'm covering up nothing. I'm exposing your hatred of this president to the point that you would destroy the institution. Nobody would be saying this about a Democratic president if a Republican House had done this. You wouldn't even ask me that question. All of you would be in our face saying that there's a Democratic president and you're denying that person, here or she, a chance to go to court and litigate these matters because you hate them so much. It shows you how complicit people have become when it comes to Trump. Not one question about the idea that a Democratic-controlled House in 48 days impeached the President of the United States with a process where he couldn't have a lawyer, couldn't call a witness and they hold it against him because he wants to object to turning over documents to them. Lindsey Graham laid it out. Now, I, I will tell you, Lindsey Graham is under under attack from some Trump supporters because he went up to Adam Schiff after it was all over and said uh, that Adam Schiff did a good job. Now, listen, uh, Lindsey Graham was an impeachment manager in the Clinton impeachment days. He understands what it's like to be up there, and, and he was being a, a, a civil person. And frankly, Adam Schiff did make a good argument. I mean, he did. Uh, you can disagree with him. I do. I, I don't think the president should be impeached. But for what he had, Schiff was actually making a coherent argument, tying the witness, existing witnesses and documents together to make his case. And he did far better than the other Democrats who were up there, which is why everybody's buzzing about Schiff, because he actually did do a better job. And uh, he, the the Republicans were playing a different game. They they weren't going. They were going after the House. So he did a good job, and and Graham credited him for it. Here's Josh Howley, the senator from Missouri. He's basically saying that we can't have any faith in our democratic process. Therefore, we need to overturn the results of the last election. I mean, that is that's an exceptional argument. I'll be interested to see if that gains traction. Um, I think it really shows also the Russia fixation. I mean, how many times did he mention Russia and Vladimir Putin? And I really think for the for the Democrats, it's becoming apparent that this is really all one thing. They they continue to buy into the Russia conspiracy theory that Russia rigged our last election somehow, that the last election was illegitimate, and that President Trump is somehow fixing to steal this next election. I think that's a crazy conspiracy theory, but really their whole case is built on that. And he came back to it over and over and over. And uh, I, I anticipate this. And we said this, what we're going to hear for the next three days. Yeah, and it, they did come back to it over and over and over. And, and Chris Wallace, of course, is, is calling out Adam Schiff for misrepresenting Mick Mulvaney. Wallace has been critical of the president's team as well, uh, but really went after Schiff on this and, and how Schiff really is helping undermine the Democratic case by being blatantly inaccurate, giving the Republicans opportunity. I just want to make one point about a specific line that that uh, Adam Schiff used a lot. He kept using the line from Mick Mulvaney, get over it, and saying, well, are we going to just get over it? Um, before I interviewed Mick Mulvaney the week of his problematic news conference, I went back and looked at that statement uh, in, in detail. And that's not 
what Mick Mulvaney said at all. He did say get over it, but he was talking specifically about the fact that there is politics in foreign policy, and specifically that when Barack Obama is conducting his foreign policy, it's going to have a different political flavor and a different policy agenda than when Donald Trump is. And each president, they're elected, uh, is fulfilling his mandate. He wasn't saying that this kind of quid pro quo, get over it, just accept it. Uh, he was talking specifically about the idea of, of policy and politics in a foreign policy agenda. So, quite frankly, uh, and I think that Adam Schiff made a, you know, a, a, an effective argument for his side of the case, but he completely misrepresented what Mick Mulvaney said when he said, get over it. And that sort of thing matters. You, 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 get, the, you get the Jerry Nadler stuff. And you get the Adam Schiff misrepresenting McMulvaney that will impact the Republicans. And that, that's that's what the president's lawyers are doing is, is they're making the case about the House of Representatives. They're not making it a defense of the president. They don't think they need to defend the president. They're just trying to, to undermine the credibility of the House and, and what they did. And, uh, I mean, you want to see how bad it is. This is Chuck Schumer uh, talking about Jerry Nadler. We're not talking about Jerry Nadler. The uh, chief justice chastised both sides without naming anybody for rhetoric that uh, he thought uh, should be toned down. Um, I was so impressed with the House manager's case. It was on the facts. It answered the questions. It talked about why we had witnesses and documents. The president's lawyers never answered the question of witnesses and documents. They talked about a lot of other things, did some finger pointing, but never answered the question. I think if you were a juror listening to both sides, you would have sided with uh, the president's, uh, the uh, house managers, because the president's counsel didn't directly answer the question why we shouldn't have witnesses and documents. Senator, do you think Gary Nadler is right? I, I, I've said what I'm going to say on that issue. Okay? <laughs> I can't do it. Can't, he can't do it. Uh, can't, can't talk about Jerry Nadler. That's part of the problem here. They're not going to convict the man. Uh, I, I don't know what more we need to say. I, I, what I do want to do is, is talk a little bit about the media bias here. I don't know if you've heard, but CNN has hired John Harwood. John Harwood was at CNBC. He also writes for the New York Times. John Harwood is a, a is very progressive. Uh, in fact, he, he tweets out regularly disparaging things about the Republican Party. He was one of the uh, he was one of the the moderators in the what 2016 debates who went hard left against the GOP. He's he is not a he is not an objective person. And I don't know what CNN's game plan is. Well, I, I do know. I can tell you what CNN's game plan here is. CNN is never going to say, oh, look, Fox News is kicking our tail. Uh, the top 10 shows in America are, um, are, are on Fox News. Therefore, maybe if we have more conservative representation, we can eat into their ratings. No, 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 no. What, what, what they're doing is saying, hey, uh, let's be MSNBC for smart people. Now, people are stupid. There aren't enough, watch, uh, none, none of them to watch. They're going to further alienate people. I mean, there are people like me who I have always preferred CNN's news product because I do think it tends to be more balanced, but it is increasingly not the case. Uh, Fox is doing a better job balancing its news coverage. Now, Fox, the, 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 listen, I don't watch the nighttime shows of Fox. And listen, I've known Sean and, and Laura and, and Tucker for years, um, and I just, I, I don't watch those shows for a number of reasons. One, I, I don't need to be yelled at. Uh, and I feel like these shows just yell at you these days. Um, I don't need to watch them beclown the left. 
uh, and and I don't want to watch them and have anyone accuse me of trying to steal material. So I just I don't watch them. It's like I don't listen to talk radio. Rush is the only exception because I, I love Rush. We're actually friends. Uh, he is the best in the business. I will listen to Rush Limbaugh and just marvel at how good he is on radio. But I don't listen to other people on talk radio. Mark Levin and I are very good friends. Uh, same with Ben Shapiro. Uh, but I don't listen to them, and I don't listen to Beck. Uh, Beck and I know each other. We're not really friends like, like I am with Levin and, and Shapiro, uh, but I don't listen to them because I don't want to ever be accused of stealing stuff from them, or I, I don't want to hear them say, wow, I, I need to steal that point. I don't want to be tempted. So I just I don't listen to other talk radio. I, 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 I read newspapers. I read online, uh, and I see what's percolating on, on social media. Uh, but, man, I, I, I got to tell you, CNN is trying to – just to be this this MS poor rich man's version of MSNBC, I guess, or poor man's version. I don't know. But they've hired John Harwood, the, this progressive hack, and you need to listen to this. Now, I talked to economic advisors who have served presidents of both parties. They said that you have as much chance of cutting taxes that much without increasing the deficit as you would of flying away from that podium by flapping your arms. A lot of parallels have been uh, offered between yourself and John F. Kennedy who also made history, came in with a young, attractive family. You give nearly twice as much of a gain in after-tax income to the top 1% as to people in the middle of the income scale. Since you're the champion of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, don't you have that backward? On the other hand, the you put thing. Marco Rubio up on a debate stage with Hillary Clinton, right. he looks like a... A schoolboy. John, you're nonpartisan. What does McCain do to try and uh, bail himself out of this? Is John nonpartisan? I don't know. I'm teasing you. How confident are you that your plan is going to work, and how do you avoid the dangers of being too cocky? We have a president who is not honest, who lacks a moral sense, who lacks empathy. As a preacher as well as a politician, you know that presidents need the moral authority to bring the entire country together. The leading Republican candidate, when you look at the average of national polls right now, is Donald Trump. When you look at him, do you see someone with the moral authority to unite the country? As somebody who's covered Washington for a long time, this is one of the most ridiculous controversies I've ever seen. And so far as I can tell, the biggest danger to kids in this whole thing is that a lot of the parents complaining aren't smart enough to raise them very effectively. I'll be honest, as a citizen, I'm concerned about the president's state of mind. He did not look well to me in that press conference. I, 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 don't, I don't know what it means, but he did not look well to me. Let's be honest. Is this a comic book version of a presidential no, campaign? A you think Utah, which finished undefeated by defeating Alabama, has a good acclaim as either of those schools to be the national champion? And the Republican state treasurer called one of your approaches to that problem nonsense on a stick. The issue no, was, I, I, I want to go back if Governor I made Christie. it to sure. Governor Christie, you've said something that many in your party do not believe, which is that climate change is undeniable, that human activity contributes to it, and you said, quote, the question is, what do we do to deal with it? That is, that is John Harwood, supposedly uh, objective commentator who peddles Democratic concerns constantly, and they've hired him at CNN where he's just going to be a, another partisan hack, and that I think is deeply problematic, and CNN is going to go further down the drain.
It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, just a, a housekeeping note for everybody. I will be out tomorrow. Alan Sanders will be filling in for me. You will be able to see and hear me tomorrow, uh, but it will be on HBO. Uh, HBO is doing, uh, yeah, I, so three times a year typically. Last year it was only, only twice, but typically it's three times a year. I do real time with Bill Maher on HBO. Uh, they they send me out there and I do the show and come back the next day, and I will be doing it. I, I will be. It, it's always you know when I got hired at CNN, I reached out. Rush Limbaugh actually is a friend, uh, and I reached out to Rush and, and said, you know, do I go with Fox? Do I go with CNN? And you know, I will never forget Rush's advice. His advice was. You should go to CNN um, because if you go to Fox, you'll be comfortable, you'll be paid well, uh, and you'll get bored because you'll be like a, a suburban preacher in Dallas, Texas, where everybody's just part of the Amen Chorus. If you go to CNN, it'll be a challenge. It'll make you better on TV. It'll make you better on radio uh, because uh, it, it, nine out of every ten things will be out to get you, and and you'll have to be a missionary in a mission field. And absolutely, he was right. Uh, I would typically— uh, be on CNN, and it would be me, a Democrat, and an anchor, and it would be two against one. Or it would be me, a Democrat, an anchor, and a nonpartisan, supposedly, person, and it would be three against one. And it, it always, it, it was astonishing. I made some very good friends, and, and I've got a great deal of respect for a number of the people at CNN who I thought were very fair and worked very hard to recognize they had biases and wanted to uh, represent the other side fairly. Those people are still there, along with a lot of other people. One of, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was never go on the daytime shows on CNN. Uh, that That's where the real liberalism was until that was before Chris Cuomo and, and Don Lemon. Um, but the, the daytime shows at CNN are desperately liberal. They're desperate to be MSNBC light, but there are some great people there. Wolf Blitzer is a wonderful person. John King, Jake Tapper, uh, and the like, they're good people. Gloria Borger is, is she's like my big sister. Um, they're, they're wonderful people. Uh, but, uh, it was, it was good in life experience to be able to learn how to have a conversation with someone on the other side who I vehemently disagree with and do so respectfully as, as my boss one time said at CNN that they cared not what my position was on anything, no matter how much they disagreed with me, as long as I could make the case respectfully, uh, make the case. And and I would. There were a couple times I got in trouble, and, and I, rightfully so with some of the things I said. Uh, but by and large, I could vehemently disagree with people on the left and still be respectful and, and a decent human being to them and they to me. And that's what it's like to go out with real time before. The people are very, very nice. And I realize when I walk in the room, I am the only conservative in the room. I am the only person who is pro-life, and more likely than not, and one of the very few people who goes to church on a Sunday. And they're very nice people, and we have a very good conversation. And and um, Bill Maher needles me the whole time, but we have a good time. Now, Megan Kelly's going to be out there tomorrow night. It'll be nice. I've known Megan for a while. She's a nice person, uh, and so I'll be able to see her. I've got a buddy of mine going with me. Uh, to to hang out in L.A. with me for for 24 hours and uh, got us reservations at some of the good restaurants where you always see the celebrities. But uh, I'm not going to see the celebrities. Some of them I know, um, and we don't like to be seen in public together because that would be bad for their career. <laughs> uh, but I, I, there are a couple of good, good, great restaurant spots in Beverly Hills. Now, the cool thing about the Bill Maher show, I, and I realize none of you watch it because you're all uh, normal people who have lives and, and aren't engaged in politics that way, but the cool thing about it 
is uh, Bill Maher's show is done on the Price is Right set. So behind the crowd, uh, you can see all the Price is Right stuff. And when you walk out right across the lot is where they film Young and the Restless and Bold and the Beauty, or, or, or uh, Bold and the Beautiful, Young and the Restless, Bold and the Beautiful. Are, they're all there right together on, at the CBS lot uh, where Bill Maher's show is done. It's actually very, very funny. Um and it's a lot of fun. So I will be gone tomorrow. I will be back on Monday. When we come back, Netflix, it's got some issues you should know about if you're a subscriber. And don't forget, uh, if you text the word ARMY to 33777, you will be on our Army of Activists. More importantly, if you text the word RECIPE to 33777, you will get a recipe. Uh, and I, I know I'm behind on sending out recipes. I will send one out. Um, text RECIPE to 33777. Here is Doug Collins, uh, was on Fox News talking about impeachment and the Democrat campaign and out there. They have to say it's rigged. End of story. Oh. They have to, Laura. I mean, think about this. Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler in particular, who went on a giant tirade last night, you know, talking about the Senate, what they're trying to do is do two things. Well, number one, they want to say that the if they don't do something now, the election is rigged. Everybody needs to be aware of that. And number two, they're saying if the Senate doesn't do what they want them to do, then the Senate is corrupt. But let me just say something. For everybody who's watched the Democratic primary presidential field, that clown car can't win. They keep getting out and they just keep getting worse. Because when compared to the president, who has actually had something to run on, trade deals, economy that's booming, a foreign policy that works, they know that they can't win on the facts. So they're trying to do everything they can to undermine a president who has done everything he said he would do, which is unique in politics, but he's not only done what he said he would do, he's followed through and reached out to millions of Americans who have been cut out of a system, African Americans, Hispanics who are at, their high, at the lowest unemployment rate in years, they're being put into the system, things like the First Step Act, like criminal justice reform, where this president reaches out, where all the Democrats have done is use them as political pawns. This is why you're seeing what you're seeing on the floor, a rehash of tall tales, lies, and dishonesty when they know they can't have candidates who can beat him at the ballot box. So yeah. what do you do? You disenfranchise people, you tell them that they can't do it. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Uh, he's he's really not wrong. And the Democrats are there. They could let the voters decide this in November. We are a bitterly divided nation right now, a 50-50 nation, and they're just dividing it further. For what? Uh, for a fundraising opportunity, ultimately. That That's that's the big issue there. I, I want to shift gears away from impeachment and elections for a little bit because if you're a regular listener of this program, you know that I am actually deeply fascinated by the streaming services. Um, I in in my house now. I'm an I'm in the Apple cult. I freely admit I'm in the Apple cult. And being in the Apple cult means I got right here. I got a, a MacBook Pro. I've got uh, my iPhone. I got my iPad over here. I've got a, uh, an iMac behind me. I've got my Apple Watch on. Uh, I I am totally in the Apple universe, and it pains me uh, that my producer will, will has an Android phone, even though he's got a Mac, and uh, I, I sent him a text message the other night, and it, it went to his phone instead of his laptop, and then it didn't go to his phone, and uh, I, I sent him a tirade the next day, and it was because I actually hadn't sent the send button when it didn't want to go as an iMessage, but as a text message, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, I just, those green bubbles, they aggravate me, and he does it out of spite. He really does. I'm, I am in the Apple cult, but I got to say, I, I'm telling you the, how much I'm in the Apple cult because I got to say, I'm not sure that the Apple TV plus service is really value add. I, I enjoyed, ultimately enjoyed C. I didn't think I'd like it. And the first four episodes I really didn't like, uh, but it got better. 
And the morning show started out good and then kind of declined, but then it got better. And I got to finish the last two episodes of it. Uh, But I just, I'm I'm wondering what else is coming with Apple. But Apple is not having an impact right now with its service. It has, however, hired the head of HBO. So for those of you who don't know, let me bring you up to speed on this. AT&T bought uh, Warner. And because AT&T bought Warner, that Warner Brothers, that means they bought Warner Brothers Studio, they bought HBO, they bought Cinemax, they bought CNN, they bought Headline News. All, all of that comes over to AT&T now. And AT&T is a phone company. AT&T does not know what to do with this stuff. So what AT&T has decided to do is commoditize it and essentially tear down HBO and turn it into something it is not. HBO has always been the place where you went for a – it was a subscriber channel, but it produced high-quality content that – People in in upper incomes really liked uh, Game of Thrones, Succession, uh, Sopranos, uh, The Watchmen series canceled after one season because it was too too Trump derangement syndrome. Um, it, but it, it's got a lot of shows, dirty little secrets and in, in the like that that people who make upper incomes they love and they go to HBO and HBO has tons of buzz and, and AT and T has decided to ruin all of that. With its streaming service, it may have some impact. It's going to be HBO Max. They're combining HBO and Cinemax without the Cinemax porn. Uh, but the real disruptor is Disney. Disney Plus. In one day, Disney Plus got 10 million subscribers. The day it launched, Disney Plus got 10 million subscribers, so much so that the very first day the feed was unstable. Uh, Netflix has never had a quarter, a three-month period, where it got three, 10 million people. And, in fact, Disney was able to get what Netflix has ever gotten in one day. So Netflix has clearly been impacted by Disney. I know in my house, uh, my kids, both of my kids now, I think, uh, the 11-year-old in particular has deleted Netflix from from the iPad he uses because he has no use for it anymore. He doesn't, doesn't want it. He just wants the Disney stuff. He wants the Mandalorian. He's waiting for the Marvel series and all that. And I'm sure Disney will politically correct him and, and woke him up and it'll be garbage. But for uh, like they've done for their, you know, we we banned the Disney Channel in our house because it's all a bunch of little uh, indoctrination efforts for for left wing cultural commentary where the boys and the girls are completely interchangeable and the boys I think like make up as much as the girls. I mean, you just can't tell. And we were just like, nope, nope, boys are going to be boys, girls are going to be girls in our house. You can't watch this crap. Uh, it's just it, it's terrible what the Disney Channel tries to do to indoctrinate kids. But nonetheless, uh, Marvel and Star Wars have not gotten there yet. Netflix, though, has been impacted greatly. It has been impacted uh, significantly enough that it's having to change the metrics for who watches Netflix. Let me read you this from uh, MarketWatch. What does it mean to watch a show on a streaming service? For Netflix, it now means watching at least two minutes. The streaming service noted in its first quarterly earnings report of 2020 on Tuesday, it changed the definition of viewership. While Netflix used to consider any customer that streams 70% or more of a single episode or film as having watched that property, it now will count a view after viewing two minutes or any offering. The company admits that it would boost the limited viewership numbers it provides by more than one-third. The new metric is about 35% higher on average than the prior metric Netflix executives said in their quarterly letter to shareholders. For example, 45 million member households chose to watch Our Planet under the new metric versus 33 minutes under the prior metric. Now, wait, just 33 million under the under the prior. Wait just a second. Just, just wait, 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 wait. 
Netflix used to count a viewer as someone who streamed 70% or more of an episode or film. 70% of it, you would be a viewer. And now you only need to watch two minutes. So, you know, on Netflix, stuff auto-plays sometimes. You you watch something, and it rolls over to the next episode. And so you get to the next episode, and you watch two minutes of it. You've you've gone out of the room. You've gone to the bathroom. You've gone to the kitchen. You come back. Suddenly, you're that, that counts as you watched it, even though you weren't in the room. The fact that Netflix is having to rig its numbers. And by the way, you should understand, no one actually believes Netflix's numbers. Netflix's numbers are are sketchy to say the least, and here's part of the problem. Netflix still deploys the dump model, and and you know to some degree that's not bad. I, I over so if you want to watch a good Netflix show, if you're into sci-fi, um, um, Lost in Space, I actually enjoyed it. It's two seasons. And I enjoyed it, A Lost in Space. Uh, it was uh, the first season came out two years ago. The the second season came, I guess, at Christmas uh, two years ago. And then this past Christmas, it the second season came out. And I binged watched it over Christmas. And it was thoroughly enjoyable. I, I very much enjoyed Lost in Space. I don't, I think I recall maybe seeing four or five other people at most on social media talking about Lost in Space. Because you can't really talk about a show when no one's watching it on the own page. On page, take Game of Thrones. I so let me tell you my story about Game of Thrones because because I I can feel the disturbance of the force. Some of you groaning right now. I tried several times to watch Game of Thrones and could never get into it. And I could never get into it. Uh, the violence, the gore, the 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 soft core porn nature of it all, all the sexuality. I the first season I, I tried and I distinctly remember the very first time I tried to watch it. I was on an airplane and I was seating the very last seat in first class on an aisle, and I started watching it, and there was just, just this violent, gory scene at the beginning of it. And I looked over my shoulder and realized there was a young kid who was staring at my iPad screen. And I'm like, I'm not going to watch this on a plane with a kid behind me watching it. And I tried again and I got further into it, but it just, it, there, it was just, it was, it was too much. Uh, back in 2016, I was stuck in the hospital for two weeks. Um, I, I don't actually remember the hospital experience until towards the end of it. I was out of ICU I was in a hospital room recovering. They had treated me for clots in my lungs and a stroke, and it, it was a mess. Um, and I was in in a room, and I was watching Adult Swim because uh, that that's that is that is my speed. Adult Swim, late at night, uh, home alone, uh, descend into bachelor caveman mode, and I watch Adult Swim. Uh, and so I'm in there, and, and the nurse comes in, a young guy, probably 20, 28, 29 years old nurse. And it is the cardiac floor, and I am by, gosh, probably 30, 40 years, the youngest person on this floor. And he's, he's, I mean, 10 years younger than me, and I'm watching Adult Swim, and he's like, the HBO is running a Game of Thrones marathon. You need to watch it. It's like, yeah, I've tried Game of Thrones. I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. And he's like, nope, we're watching it. And he took the remote from me and turned on HBO Game of Thrones, and I couldn't get up. I couldn't get out of the bed. To, to change the channel. And so I'm either, I fall asleep or, and I'd slept for basically a week and a half. And so I was wide awake and oh man, I was hooked. It was, it was the best written series on television I'd ever seen. It was incredible. And it was in season five. So I didn't really know the characters or anything. And I had to, I, I was so impressed by what I saw 
uh, that I, I I went home, I got out of the hospital, and I just began binge watching Game of Thrones to catch up before the sixth season. And when the sixth season started, I was one of those people who on Sunday nights uh, would tell my wife and kids goodbye, and I would grab a beer, go upstairs, and had a 70-inch TV, and I would watch Game of Thrones by myself, have a beer, watch Game of Thrones, and it was fantastic. Uh, and I had to watch it on delay because... There is a lot of violence and a lot of sexual stuff in there that I don't think is appropriate, and so I could skip it. Um, but it was a good show. It was so well scripted. It was so well done. I don't feel guilty for telling you. I, I have some of my Christian friends who are like, I can't believe you would watch this show. But I did, and I and I really liked it, and I thought they did a good job. That's a, a long diversion, I realized, to get to this point. When you watched Game of Thrones on a Sunday night— at 11 p.m. when Game of Thrones ended, or 10 p.m. really, I guess, when Game of Thrones ended, and then the next day, all of the chatter on social media, all of the chatter on, on entertainment websites, all of the chatter, frankly, on news websites was about what happened last night on Game of Thrones. It was the most watched television series in human history. More than 100 million people around the world would watch an episode. That's how good it was. That's how engrossing it was and captivating it was for people. And even though the last couple of seasons, it was very clear that the, the creators wanted to get out of it as quick as possible. They were mad at HBO. They were done. Bridges had been burned and they wanted to get out. I, I, I get it. I got it. I, I understood, but I still liked it. I liked it a lot, even even the last season. It was rushed. They should have done more. They should have gone more in depth, but it was good. And everybody talked about it. Nobody does that to HBO. Nobody does that to Netflix. Take The Mandalorian. Look at the buzz for The Mandalorian versus you pick the series. Pick The Witcher. The Witcher on Netflix with Henry Cavill has gotten extraordinary media coverage because it's Henry Cavill. It is something that, that the nerds love, and it's Netflix. It has not gotten half the social commentary that The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda have gotten. Now, one of the reasons is because uh, The Mandalorian came out every Friday. And so if you wanted to watch The Mandalorian, by Monday, anyone who wanted to watch it had probably watched The Mandalorian. So when you got into the office on Monday, you could say, man, over the weekend, did you see The Mandalorian? Just like, did you see Game of Thrones? And everybody could talk about it at the water cooler. With Netflix, with The Witcher, you're like, hey, have you seen The Witcher? And half people are like, what, what the hell's The Witcher? And the other half is like, oh, man, no, I'm only on, I'm only on episode one. And so you can't have the commentary, you can't have the conversation, and you can't have the social commentary because not not everybody's on the same page. When Netflix came out, the idea that you could dump uh, thirteen episodes of a show and you could stay up all night, all weekend long, and you could binge watch was something novel and something cool. The downside was that kind of world. People don't have the time to binge watch except during the holidays, and even then, you you got limited attention span with everything else. And so Netflix has had this problem and here comes Disney and they're going to do a standard TV model of dropping an episode once a week. You got to come back every week. You got to pay attention. Apple's doing the same thing, although it's not nearly as compelling. Then Netflix, meanwhile, is still causing you to binge watch and people are falling behind and they can't engage. They can't have conversations where television used to be able to, you be used to be able to tie everything together and have these conversations. You can't with Netflix. And so now Netflix, in addition to Disney stealing audience and stealing metrics, Netflix is having to adjust its own metrics to try to make its shows viewed more. And one of the tricks Netflix does to make the juice the views is they autoplay stuff. So you're not even in the room when something comes on and Netflix is saying, there's a viewer. They've got problems. Now, I've got some friends of mine, some in Hollywood, some probably listening to the podcast of the show right now. 
and I'm going to, I know several of them, it's not just one, um, it, it is several of them are going to take issue with me on Netflix, but is Netflix going to be around in 10 years? Yeah, I think Netflix is going to be around, but I think Netflix has long-term problems. Uh, Netflix's model, I don't think is sustainable if it gets solid competition because Netflix is building up a deep reservoir of intellectual property, but it's not there yet. And Disney, it's not just that Disney has intellectual property. Disney has theme parks. Uh, you're, you, no one's going to the Witcher theme park owned by Netflix, but they sure as heck are going to Disney World to the Star Wars land. Uh, they sure as heck are, are going, and, and they're trying to interact with Marvel stuff, although Disney, east of the Mississippi, Disney has, has given Universal its Marvel characters. But even so, you're going to Universal. Harry Potter World, Warner Brothers, all, all of this. I, I think Netflix has problems, and it, it is telling and troubling for the company, I think, that they're having to rearrange their viewership numbers to m juice their viewership numbers to make it look like more people watch their shows when half of them are probably auto-plays and people weren't even in the room. I just, I, I, I would not bet on Netflix for the long term. Even if it'll be around, it's going to be nothing like what it is right now. The, the great disruptor is being disrupted by the old guard. Yes, you should. We will get fired up on on our activist portal uh, as the state legislature here in Georgia moves on. You know, the governor is making a big deal about gangs. And I got to tell you that there really is a Democrats and media together in Georgia. It is a moral outrage pushback against Governor Kemp here in Georgia. For those of you listening outside the state of Georgia, uh, our previous governor here in Georgia, Nathan Deal, actually was big on criminal justice reform and essentially, and, and it was good, and I totally supported the effort, that if you are a nonviolent offender, let's say you're a drug addict, let's say you got a drug addiction and you've gone to jail because you were trying to buy drugs. Governor Deal's position, and I agree with it, is why are we sending a nonviolent person with a drug addiction to jail when we can send them to a mandatory treatment program? And if they clean up their act, they, they can stay out of jail. And we have, one, we've helped someone, and two, we've kept them from clogging up the jails when we have limited capacity and, and we need to focus on violent crime. And it was great. Well, Governor Kemp's position is we need to go harder after gangs and violent crime. And, and you will be unsurprised to learn that the media reaction, uh, along with the Democratic reaction, is we don't have a gang problem. We don't actually have a gang problem. Well, you, you, there actually is a gang problem in the state. But you talk to Democrats in the state, you talk to the media, and what they say is that actually violent crime in Georgia is on the decline. And because violent crime in Georgia is on decline, it means we don't have a gang problem. That's not smart thinking. That's conventional wisdom thinking of not smart people. Do you know why there's not a violent crime problem with gangs in the state now? Because if you talk to people in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation who specialize in this, what they will tell you on background is that the gangs have figured out how to collaborate with each other and divide territories. And there's peace among the gangs right now because they're all making so much money in the trafficking trade, hard drugs and people. Yep, that's right. Human trafficking is an issue with the gangs, particularly some of the Mexican gangs. MS-13 or whatever uh, has set up shop in Georgia. And there is a lot of data out there. Uh, some of it, you, I, you will recall, I played the interview with the governor the other day, and the governor couldn't actually go into all the details about the gang activity in the state. 
but said he has been briefed now several times, and it really is a problem, and that's the genesis of this, the briefings he's been getting from law enforcement. The media doesn't know these things. The media doesn't have a clue, and yet the media is saying this isn't a problem. Said the overarching issue, I thought it was very interesting. When I raised the issue of marijuana, and the, the the how commonplace that weed sales are now in Georgia because of the spillover effect from Florida, people who drive from Colorado and sell it in the state. Uh, the governor said that he really was dismissive of that to me, which I thought was telling. Makes me wonder where he's going on, on uh, marijuana legalization. But at the same time, he was really focusing on the hardcore drugs, the, the fentanyl, the, um, the opioids, the heroin, the, the things like that. And that the, the drug trade in Georgia behind the scenes and under the radar has exploded. And the gangs are making so much money, they really are at truce with each other. They've divided up territories. And it, it, it's a trafficking operation now. It's almost like a, a, a mafia criminal enterprise organization. They're, they're not killing each other. They're not doing drive-by shootings because they're all getting fat, happy, and rich off the people of Georgia. Meanwhile, the state of Georgia is dealing with the fallout effects, uh, the victims of human trafficking. They're dealing with the, the, the kidnappings. They're dealing with the – which are insignificant, many of them coming from elsewhere to here. But then they're dealing with the, the opioid crisis and the drug addiction and the fallout in those communities. So it really has been interesting to me to watch the pushback from members of the media against the governor on this for saying we got a gang problem. Where they're like, well, we don't see crime. There must not be a problem. Have you seen the opioid addiction? That's his point. What a bunch of denial from people in the press right now on this issue.